Today's episode is brought to you by Cattle. Every product launch faces a chicken and egg problem. You need reviews to convert, but you need conversions to get reviews. Cattle can help. Cattle helps brands win share. They leverage their consumer panel for insights, collecting receipts, and driving product ratings and reviews. It is the largest daily active survey panel in Canada, with over 10,000 daily active users and over 100,000 monthly active users. Let cattle be your chicken and or your egg, depending on your perspective. Visit getcattle.com to learn more. When you take a step back, you're like, does it really help grow top line? Does it really help improve profitability? Like, probably not. Then why did I just spend all my time on it? Welcome to Hearts and Carts, the CPG podcast, the podcast about the people behind the products that are winning hearts and filling carts. This cast is for anyone with an interest in the world of consumer products. We're your hosts, Justin Osborne and Alex Hill, and our mission is to bring you weekly content that helps you be a better and more informed CPG professional. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Hearts and Carts. Thank you so much for joining us again. Justin, who are we going to be chatting with today? We are chatting with Sean Lee, who is the president and co-founder of Cincy Brands. Uh, You know, Sean's had a really interesting career in the CPG space, starting off at Procter & Gamble, one of the largest CPG companies in the world learning a ton from them, running a ton of cool campaigns that just about everybody listening will be familiar with, then moving into more of the e-commerce space and now venturing out on his own. So he's going to talk to us about that, about his learnings, and then advice for the next generation. With that, we will move into the interview. Please remember to like, subscribe, follow us on our social media channels, and continue to interact with us. And here we go. The lights of Cincinnati, oh, so many miles behind, I could build myself a new life. Sean, how are you? Good, man. How are you guys? I'm great. Thanks for, for hopping on the, the show here and, and for agreeing yeah, to like join, that. especially I'm sure this week is busy for you, you know, professionally and personally, but... You know, saw you know, saw some posts with you and, and saw your LinkedIn page and sort of your career path and thought that you would be a great you know, voice for the show and you know our listeners could learn a lot from you. So I'm I'm glad you could make the time to meet with us. Yeah, um, excited to be here and, and hopefully I can add some value for the listeners. Yeah. So so let me introduce you. We have Sean Lee on the show today, who is the president and co-founder at Cincy Brands. He's had a long career in the space and some interesting uh, different turns, started in sort of large CPG. Uh, at, at Procter and Gamble, and then moved into sort of some e-commerce spaces, and now is working in the Better for You. So it's actually a, a fairly similar path to mine, which is interesting. Um, just a more successful path than mine, but but same sort of idea, kind of going. <laughs> I don't know going if I would through. say that. <laughs> um, and and so a path that I think a lot of people are doing is sort of they're they're starting in big CPG and then moving into this the smaller Better for You brands and taking some of those learnings and. And um, you know, using that to help build up these brands. So, so really cool career path and something I think that's you know on the minds of a lot of people as they begin their journeys and, and try and figure out what they want to do. So, for us, what we want to do is provide some insights, um, career journey information to that next generation of people. 
so that they can be more successful. And that, that's why I really think your story is going to be helpful. So maybe you could start off with just you know, telling us about you, you know, when you finished up school, what, what you started to do and, and how you, you know, started your career and then walk us through to, uh, to where you are right now. Yeah, no, for sure. Thank, and, and thanks again for having me on. And, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I can be helpful to, to kind of the next generation or people that are looking to get into CPG, CPG and, and, and do what we're, we're all doing. So, yeah, I mean, my, my path to CPG was, was a little bit probably unpredictable. I don't think I was a kid saying like, I really want to work in CPG when I'm older, like, you know, like everybody else. So, um, so originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in the States, grew up here, went to the University of Cincinnati and originally majored in, in pre-med. So I did about two years in pre-med, wanted to go to med school, do that. After a while, I just realized, you know what, do I really want to commit to like eight to 10 years? Like, I don't know if I really, my heart's really in it. So did what everybody does when that happens and switch to the business school because, you know, why not? Like all my friends were doing it. Um, switched the bit to the business school and and picked finance as a major. I figured I, I, I've always kind of been creative and analytical. And I figured having a finance kind of degree or like analytics type degree would be incredibly helpful no matter what what I did. Um, went down that path. And, you know, you're in college, you're kind of figuring out what you like, what you don't like. I think I had interned at Wells Fargo, Merrill Lynch, a few other places like that and realized, you know, the suit and tie, like, you know, blue suit, black shoes, like just wasn't really for yeah. me a little too stuffy. And, you know, there's a lot of regulation, you're kind of bound by what you can and can't do. And it's not to say it's not creative, but it's not super creative, right? It's a lot of it's a lot of like formulas and spreadsheets. So yeah. I was a little late in my career. So already in finance and, and was like, how do what do I want to go do? So when I was in undergrad, I had run for student body vice president um, on a slate with another guy and I ran our campaign. And the whole thing was like, you know, I did market research, insights, brought focus groups together and figured out like, how could we win this thing? And what what were the right messages to go do that? And I think we won by like 70% of the vote. So it was like an awesome experience. And I kind of looked at it, I'm like, maybe I want to go into politics and realize, you know, long hours, a lot of moving, probably not a lot of money in it um, when you're running political campaigns, but like, what's the best parallel? And it was probably consumer marketing. So Late in my career, I was like, how do I get in the PNG? Because it was local in Cincinnati. Like, that's the mecca of where you go learn consumer marketing. Um, mm-hmm. So did a lot of networking. Um, I think I had graduated during the, the recession of 08. So everybody was kind of on a hiring freeze at the time. So I had met a ton of people like presidents, others at PNG, anybody that would, would get coffee with me uh, and give me advice on like how to, you know, take the test that you need to take to get in there and, and get through the interview process. So was fortunate to kind of build a rapport with four or five people that mentored me along the way. Went through their entire process. They gave me a call and said, hey, we really like you, but we're on a hiring freeze. So, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Maybe we'll call you back sometime. So I'm like, what do I go do? Um, I'm 22, like coming out of school, have a little bit of student loan debt. So I just took the best available job in finance that I could get. I think I worked at PNC Bank for, you know, six months, nine months in kind of their corporate banking training program. And you know, was doing it again, finance wasn't what I wanted to do. So I was kind of constantly looking at like, what's next while I was kind of going through this training program. And fortunately, PNG called me back and was like, hey, wasn't expecting that. They're like, hey, we've got an opening, hiring freezes over. Um, we want to have you come work on the IMS pet food brand, which, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So I'm like, oh, yeah, great. Like, I'll <laughs> sign me up. So ended up leaving PNC and started at PNG, like pretty right away, probably like six to nine months after, uh, after graduating. And I mean, it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, I think for anybody that's wanting to get into consumer goods, I mean, you can certainly work in a consumer goods startup. You could work for a private equity consumer goods company. But I think whether it's P&G, whether it's Unilever, Pepsi, Kellogg's, Coca-Cola, I think 
even if you only spend a few years there, the training that you're going to get and how to think about consumer goods, how to really run a, a consumer goods PL, manage a cross-functional team is second to none, right? I would call it the consumer mm-hmm. goods MBA is, is working at those, those companies because like they've been doing this for years, right? So the first few years there are very prescriptive of you have your, I don't even know what they call them now, but I was an assistant brand manager. So that you've got your training cohort and it's very baked out. They like really teach you everything you need to know. They give you some leash to go make decisions and work on TV commercials and write your monthly business letter update and look at all the like retail sales data. Um, But never enough to really like let you shoot yourself in the foot or really cause the business any harm. But I mean, for anybody, I mean, it's, it's, it's great experience and you really get to see how these brands work. Right. I mean, at at the time I was there, Imes was a billion dollar brand. um, And I was, you know, making TV commercials and doing consumer research about those TV commercials and spending, you know, 50 to $60 million of, of TV buys to put them on air at 23, 24. So, I mean, yeah. a, a really cool experience um, that I, I really look back fondly on and, and would, would recommend to anybody. And so I'll, I'll kind of, I'll kind of stop there. And I'd say the next kind of tranche of advice that I would have is if you do go that path and work at these companies, I think, the people and the network that you build there are also mm-hmm. incredible. So even having left, like oftentimes incredibly smart people, they leave and they go work at other consumer goods companies. They launch their yeah. own businesses. They work at venture capital firms. So even just for me, as I've went out and done more entrepreneurial things, the network that I have from working there and kind of the credibility um, mm-hmm. of talking to other alumni is, is great. Cause everyone knows that you've went through the same shared experience, the same training, um, you're kind of cut from the same cloth. So in general, like I could probably call anybody else that worked at P&G or often other consumer goods companies, and they're usually going to at least take my call or, or hear me out um, if I'm selling a product or a service or, or something, because we all kind of had that same shared experience. It's almost like, you know, people that were in a fraternity or sorority in college or somebody that was in the, the military. It's like that shared background that I think um, is like a weird unspoken cultural thing that everybody kind of understands and and relates to one another. Yeah, you, you described it as like the PNG MBA, which is like, it's like a university alumni, the way that you can reach out to them and you build that network. Yeah. So I think that that makes a, a ton of sense. What was it like going from banking to PNG? Because I would imagine there's probably, you know, large cultural differences between the two different areas. Yeah, I mean, it was it was completely different, right? Like banking was very very kind of prescriptive. It was working with some clients or like middle, I was working with some middle market firms and trying to do financing. Right. So it's like, you get the data from them, you kind of understand what they're looking for. And then you can, you have a little bit of influence, but you're really just packaging it up and then sending it to an underwriter. Right. So it's like very follow the process um, kind of like, there's not a lot of deviation. Right. Then I came to PNG and they're like, well, like in in meetings, they're like, it's a very PNG thing. And I think a lot of other consumer goods do this too, but I remember my first meeting, probably a month in, we were reviewing like a print ad or some copy in a, in a marketing meeting. And the general manager looked at me first and said, well, you're the, the newest person here. What do you think? So you kind of put on the spot and you're like, hey, you know, they're giving you, they want your opinion. They want your perspective. And I think that was probably the big difference is they really, in consumer goods companies like P&G, want you to be an owner of the business and always come with a perspective, mm-hmm. um, which I think is is part of the culture there. Um, and that's just a lot different than a lot of other, a lot of, a lot of other companies period. Right. Um, you're not expected to be the, the cross-functional leader. We would call it like the, the hub and spoke model. Like you're at the the center of the hub and you're, you're expected to kind of know what's going on with product supply, with forecasting, with finance. Um, so a lot of responsibility. And I think that was probably the biggest shift of going from kind of 
these defined systems and structures with kind of narrow responsibility to, you know, a lot of broad responsibility where you're expected to to go deep and kind of know everything about the business, which again is is a great experience for anybody that's that's trying to get into CPG because, you know, it's like riding a bike at state. Those those principles that you learn stay with you forever. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So after after IAMS, where what what came next? Yeah. So after IAMS, um, it was interesting. I was at IAMS at a time when I first started there. There was a, a big supply disruption. I think we had some salmonella in our dog food and had to do a recall. And, you know, that was probably one of the, like, going on a side tangent here, one of the first, like, good marketing lessons that I learned was we weren't shipping, like, 70% of our products for three to six months. The next logical thing is, well, maybe we should just cut our advertising since we're not on shelf. Why would we advertise if we're not on shelf? Um, hmm. And for a brand with that much awareness and kind of, um, you know, national trial, that was probably the biggest mistake we could have made because once we went dark on advertising for three to six months, when the product did get back on shelf, kind of the uptick was, was not as fast as we thought it would be because, you know, we hadn't had any impressions or awareness for a good half of a year. So you're almost not starting from scratch, but you're kind of getting back in the people's mindsets and you got to hit them with a message, you know, seven or eight times before you're back in the considerate consideration set. Um, So looking back, like that's always a lesson that stuck with me. Uh, you probably never want to go dark in marketing. You could pull back on some dollars, but don't completely cut it. Um, so that was interesting. So worked there to kind of stabilize that business um, with a great team. And then fortunately, like the last year I was there, we were growing again and and had kind of the ability to kind of pick what I wanted to do next, which was fortunate. So ended up on Old Spice, which was awesome. Um, it was right around the time that, you know, Isaiah Mustafa, the guy, the I'm on a horse guy mm-hmm. commercials yeah. had come out. So, so great, great people. There were uh, a guy named George Felix had worked on that campaign. Who's, who's done some awesome things. He was the CMO at, or in marketing at KFC. And then I think he was at match.com. And I think now he's at Chili's, but great guy. Um, and I was able to kind of come in and, and, and really work on that business after him and did a lot of work with Terry Cruz and kind of brought him on as the second old spice guy, which was a ton of fun. Um, great relationships with everybody there. And, the cool thing is like we got onto a rocket ship and that business went from almost being irrelevant to we were growing it for the few years I was there, like 10, 15% a year, which for anybody that's working in big consumer goods, like yeah, that's incredible. Huge. Normally you're gonna grow one, two, three percent a year and and that's success, right? So it was a it was a super cool time to be there. And yeah. um I think that was where really started to learn more about e-commerce and digital because we were targeting you know, young guys, right? And how do you how do you reach young guys? Like we weren't doing a lot of TV buys besides live sports. And I mean, this is kind of dating myself back in the early 2010s, but like we were putting all of our ads in um, like YouTube, Facebook, Reddit at the time. Um, so yeah. just a different model than PNG, right? Where you're, you're normally like blanketing the airwaves of national television. We're like, yeah. we're only going to do live sports and then we're only going to spend on digital where these guys spend their time. And I mean, it was a cool, cool process. And I think, you know, a foreshadowing of what would happen with every other age group going forward. Yeah, because it, it really did shift. Like I, when I was a kid, Old Spice seemed like a, an, you know, an old man brand. Yeah, so my dad would use. Yeah. And then, yeah, over that period of time with those commercials, that marketing campaign, it definitely became like the millennial product. And yep. now, like I still use it. I still use it every it's, day. I even I even use the swagger one, which they talk about. Yeah. So, so great, uh, I still use the product all the time. So it did shift from like my thinking of the product as a as a grandpa brand to something that I was using and everyone my age group was using. So it really did yeah. have a, a massive like paradigm shift. Yeah. The cool thing about it, and like I can't take any credit for this. I mean, it really it was 
it was like the awesome team at, at Wyden and Kennedy, who's, who's Nike's creative agency. Once yeah. they brought them on as the main agency, they really, I think there was kind of an, some folklore at P&G of before Wyden and Ken, Kennedy came on, they had a couple agencies pitching them. And one of the decisions was like, do you rebrand it as New Spice or do you just like sell it off or shut it down completely? Wyden and Kennedy oh. came in and said, no, you double down on Old Spice. And here's why. Because they had this data that basically said it had a crazy amount of like household penetration market share with like men 60 to 80. Um, mm. Like what you typically thought, right? Yeah. Like your grandpa uses it. Um, and then there was like this 30, 25 to 40 year old group or like 25 to 50 year old group that just like didn't use it. So they're like, we're just going to write them off who are never going to think it's cool because it's their, what their dad uses. Let's go after the grandkids of those people. And like their insight was like, let's, I think the first campaign they launched was you wouldn't be here if your grandpa didn't wear it. And like, they really just tried to make it this like cool thing where like, you know, these like cool old school pictures of like grandpas with like their, you know, like back black and white photos and like their old swagger. Yeah. Their old swagger. That's like really cool. And that's how they restaged the brand and like went after it. And then obviously like, started really just targeting that, that younger demo. And then I think that they were able to hold that as that demographic started, you know, becoming our age too. So as far as I know, they still have a pretty good market share between, you know, 15 all the way up to probably 35 or 40 now, um, which is which is pretty incredible for how they, they turn that brand around. Um, and again, Wyden Kennedy, Nike's agency, like I, we've all seen what they've done with Nike. Like those guys are, yeah. you know, probably they push the limits of creativity and um, they're awesome to work with. Yeah. Feels like, yeah, it just feels like um, actually similar to what you said with IMs. It's like you got to keep filling that bucket, right? Like you're always yep. leaking and it feels like a smart strategic move for Old Spice to just decide that the cost to get the 25 to 50 in is something you just don't want to pay. And you got those pliable younger people who you can actually put a message together for. So really, yeah, really and smart. the insight was like those guys admire their grandpas, right? Like yeah. well, oftentimes yeah. they, you admire your grandparents and it's not, like, they're not uncool. They're like, Hey, like I love, I love going over to my grandparents' house. Or like these guys, they they have time to spend mm-hmm. with me. They're cool, but you think your parents might be nerdy or something. So that was the whole insight that kind of they leveraged to turn it around, which was which was really incredible. Um, but yeah, so so did Old Spice had a, had a great experience there, and then um, was promoted and PNG to they just formed this like global digital e commerce team. And I think part of it was probably I was young and on Old Spice which was very like digital forward. And they were like, let's just tap the young guy and put him in the e-commerce role because nobody else understands e-commerce. He'll, he'll figure it out and tell us what to go do. Um, so that was cool. So it was in that role and really helped for about two years, the company think about how they should go to market direct to consumer. Like what's the role of a, a brand's website? Should you sell direct to consumer? Should it just be informational? And then at the time, Amazon was probably about three or 4% of P&G's overall, overall sales. And then in China, mm-hmm. Um, Tmall, which is part of Alibaba, was probably comparable. Um, so it was responsible with like, how do we think about the role of websites and D2C, but also like, what's the playbook and best practice for Amazon and, and Tmall in China? So I spent a lot of time kind of rolling out the best practices and strategies for how brand, our brand should think about it and spent ton, a ton of time in Asia and in Geneva, really kind of, you know, selling those playbooks to the company mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, sometimes felt like pounding my head against the wall because yeah if it wasn't in the u.s at the time if it wasn't walmart or target nobody really wanted to, to talk <laughs> about it but i'm like hey guys this amazon thing's going to be big like yeah. if you can get out in front of it before unilever and our competitors do we're gonna have yeah. a massive massive advantage um which is cool and i think i mean that ended up proving true i mean amazon's probably the number two customer behind walmart now for png um but at the time it kind of felt like you know 
you were screaming like, hey, the world's changing, but it wasn't in the immediate term. So nobody really was rewarded on it or, or cared a ton, but yeah. it was a great experience to go kind of dig in and and do that and, and evangelize e-com. Yeah, for sure. Big, sometimes big companies move slow, right? And then it's also like Correct. if you're incentivizing your people on a yearly basis, not on a five or 10 year rolling. It's like, well, this yeah, thing's going to be huge matter, in right? 10 years, but I, yeah. I want my bonus this year, right? So it can be exactly, tricky. Exactly, exactly. But, that, but, but an amazing time to be part of it, just to grow that, because it's it's um, now that it's grown into this behemoth, especially through COVID, like it, it's cool to see it from the very beginning to where it is now. To your point, it's probably second biggest customer and um, and Alibaba is huge as well, right over there. So it's it's all grown um, absolutely massively. Okay, so, that, yeah. so, you did, so you did that for a while and then it looks like you moved into another role at P&G. Yep, so, so from there, I was kind of, I was still kind of in this e-commerce kick and wanted to kind of do what I'd done in Old Spice with like digital and then everything I'd kind of learned about D2C and e-commerce. And the, this new group, there's always like some group at these epic companies, right? Some new business creation group. They were just kind of reorging and created this group called PNG Ventures. And the whole thing was like, you know, it was going to be on the same, it shared the floor with the C-suite of PNG. And it was all about like, how do we pull it out from the different business units that, you know, may not be thinking about disruptive innovation or entering new categories and how do we create new brands by either partnering with them or or acquiring them. So I thought that was really interesting and I've probably bucked the trend. Like normally the trend would be like, oh, I did this role. I'll go back and be a brand manager or director on like Tide mm-hmm. or Pampers. But I've always kind of followed what's what's like intellectually interesting to me, which may not be the normal, the normal path that people take at CPG, but it always ended up kind of for me working out and yeah. and, and working out well. Um, mm-hmm. So I found this role in PNG Ventures and basically came into an assignment and they were like, hey, there's D2C brands. There's all these things that are kind of disrupting. Can you, we want to play in the safe and effective space or like kind of where I am today, the better for you space. Like what are different categories that we could go either acquire or kind of find technology and go disrupt? So worked with our a small team and really looked at a few different categories. Um, insect control popped to the top of the list, which, you know, isn't the sexiest category in the world, but mm-hmm. we really liked it because it, it almost felt like Gillette, right? Where like you had Dollar Shave Club and Harry's kind of start eating market share with these new models of a behemoth that probably had 80% market share and dominated the shelves. Insect control around the globe was very, very similar. In, in the US, you've got Raid, which everyone probably in Canada too, mm-hmm. Raid and Hot Shot. Mm-hmm. But it's it's pretty hard to break into. So a lot of startups can't get into it because there's a lot of like regulatory stuff. You have to file in different states and in Canada, like different provinces and 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 sometimes with the EPA in the United States. Same thing in China, a lot of like regulatory hoops. So we, we were like, let's go figure out how we disrupt insect control um, and really try to throw the typical P&G playbook out the window and was like, how do we learn from what Harry's did, what Casper did, the guys at Hubble Contacts? The cool thing was because I was in PNG Ventures, a lot of those people would take my call or I could find somebody mm-hmm. that would introduce me to yeah. them. So I remember talking to one of the co-founders of Casper, co-founders of Hubble Contacts, and basically just would be like, will you give me an hour and let me pick your brain on how you're going to market, what you're investing ads on, like how you're driving, kind of direct response, like trial. Um, and basically after I talked to like four or five of these type of brands and the co-founders, like everybody had the same playbook and I'm like, great, let's just go do that in inset control. So we originally launched it on a Shopify site. I was running, I had a small agency that I had the the crazy story. Like they wanted us to use like a big New York agency. I forget what it was, maybe Anomaly or one of those guys. They were not suited to like spin up like 50 different Facebook ads and different copy, like dating myself at the time because everything was Facebook, but like spinning all that up, 
they were like, hey, we'll do one ad and it's going to take forever and a bunch of rounds of creative. And I'm like, I can't work with these guys. <laughs> like, fast. Yeah. 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 We're, we're not going to be able to do this. Right. So I found an agency um, out of Houston, Texas called MMI, who I still have a great relationship with our CEO today. They had just been doing some test stuff with PNG and I'm like, they're already an improved vendor. I know that they know performance marketing. I, 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 I kid you not, I had the right a one-page memo to Mark Pritchard, the CMO of PNG, to get an exception to allow them to buy advertising for for this new brand Zevo, which is kind of funny. So he granted it, and like I basically just flew down there, and we 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 figured out how we're gonna market this thing to our Shopify site, what the metrics are gonna be, and I was buying ads, they were buying ads. We kind of just treated it like a partnership, and we were tinkering with Google, we were tinkering with Facebook daily, and we got it to a point where we were, I think we had ordered an initial batch of inventory and we ended up like selling out in like the first like two months. And we, we projected that was going to last us like six to nine months of our tests. And we were like, all right, we're, mm. we're on to something here. Um, obviously like times have changed, but we were acquiring customers for like nine bucks in the insect control category, which I'm like, who the hell is going to buy insect control online? And like, let alone at not a $9 cost per acquisition. So we were like, yeah. great, we're really on to something here. Like how do we, how do we accelerate this even further? So kind of took that Shopify data and, and ran the same play that I saw Harry's and these other guys running, which is how do you grow your awareness with your distribution? So PNG could go get 100% distribution if they wanted to, but you're never going to make enough people aware to, to keep that distribution and it yeah. might fail and get delisted. So what I saw with like Harry's and these other guys is like they would grow online until, you know, they had a core base, like 10, 15, 20% of the population were aware of them. Then they go to Target, right? Which has like 10, 15% market share, often the same kind of affluent customer. So I'm like, how do we do that same model with, with Zevo? So we chose Home Depot because they were looking for innovation. It wasn't the typical place that people came to from big companies to, to launch new innovation. Mm-hmm. They got got behind it. We did a year exclusive with them, massively exceeded expectations there, um, which was really cool. Um, and then took it to Target year two. And uh, then they went Walmart year three and kind of ran that same Harry's model, um, which was cool to see because the brand grew sustainably in a way where the investments made sense. And I think Today, like I was just talking to somebody with a brand a, a couple months ago, it's I think it's about an eighty to one hundred million dollar revenue brand now in the U.S., which again for not existing five or six years ago is 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 pretty cool, pretty pretty impressive. Um, but I got to the point where PNG was pushing me like it's time for your new assignment. We want you to go back and you know be a director of you know something on in fabric care or baby care. And yeah, I just kind of looked at it and I was like, you know what, I really like this entrepreneurial thing. I probably worked startup hours on something I had no equity in. Like, how do I go <laughs> and I get that small company experience and, and and continue doing it? So I was like, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Like, uh, I'm actually going to resign um, because I've decided I'm going to go do something different, which mm-hmm. has a whole, a whole host of issues. I had to meet with a ton of, you know, senior executives. They're trying to convince me to stay. I'm like, look, guys, I've, I've made my decision. Like, I think the small company route's the way I want to go. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it was a great way to kind of close my chapter at PNG and left on very good terms and still have great relationships with a ton of people that work there and a ton of people who have since retired or left. Yeah. And that, and that I'm sure is, is scary, right? Leaving a company that you, that one is one of the biggest CPG companies in the entire world, right? Yep. And that you've built up so much internal equity with and like, you know, all those relationships and all that so you've proved yourself and you probably have a ton of different opportunities. There's so many people that work there. There's always people yeah. moving around. So, so to leave and and know, Hey, I want to stay down this, this smaller path. Like, was it just that you, you enjoyed the, the last role so much? Was it an opportunity came up? Like, what was it that gave you that push? Because I, I'd imagine a lot of people are are scared to make that leap. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, a little of it was there's kind of a, a couple of factors that I've been thinking about for a while. One was there was an opportunity that came up, which I'll talk talk about. Um, but I kind of always had this vision. Like I was a little bit risk averse, like as I went through college and everything else, kind of my background, I grew up yeah. in very like working cat, working class, like blue collar neighborhood, like the whole thing. So it was like working at PNG was like great. Like that's, you know, that's a great yeah. achievement for everyone. So I was never like, oh, I could take a risk out of college and go launch something or, or run my own company. But always had this in my back of the back of my mind. Like I want to work towards a goal where, you know, I, I own my own company or I'm running my own company or, you know. I'm the CEO of like a private equity backed company or something like that. So oh, that was kind of always in the back of my mind of what I wanted to do. Um, and it really started kind of thinking about it more as I was, you know, almost a decade into PNG. And I'm like, how do I, how do I kind of get there? So I was thinking about that. I was also looking at, as I saw people maybe a decade older than me at PNG, not that they weren't happy there, but you know, they kind of hit their ceiling at PNG and maybe I would say we're, weren't as fulfilled as they probably were when they were younger working there. Um, and what I, probably because they, they couldn't leave because at that point you, you have too many stock options, too many golden handcuffs that you kind of just like, even if it's not what you want to do, you just stick it out until you retire. And I didn't, I, for me, I was like, if I hit that point, I know that I'm going to be in that same situation and I'm probably not going to leave. So I was like, now's the time to do it. If, if I'm going to do it, I might as well just yeah. like rip off the bandaid and, and go. Um, at the same time, the next company I worked for was a company called Pure Romance. The CEO, I knew their CEO, and he was looking to kind of digitally transform their business um, and was kind of approaching me about coming on to, to do that. I would report directly to him, help get the, stand up their e-commerce um, arm. And for me, I'm like, it, it was kind of a natural, like, I'll go to this. It was about a you know $120 million annual revenue company, family owned and private equity owned. I'm like, it's a great transition to go from like billions of dollars and unlimited resources to this like still a large company, but you know, I think it had not, not like a startup, like, but like, a, yeah, right. yeah, but yeah, a nice, yeah. a nice in between step, I would say. Yeah. And I thought the challenge was for me, I thought the challenge was interesting just because I had learned so much in e-com and like their model was kind of shifting um, from what I would call like the, the, like the MLM it's like an, the MLM business. Right. So, but it was very much like the Tupperware type model where, you know, B2B, like it's all like consultants order products from a B2B website. They, they carry it at their house, they go have parties, they sell the product, they do all that. But the world was shifting and the CEO kind of knew that and got out in front of it. Um, and was like, we need to have a better, you know, digital presence, probably more like a, a rodent in field, something like that, where they could carry inventory. If they didn't want to carry all the inventory, they could just, you know, check people out on on the website. We would drop ship it and they would make a commission. It would be less than if they bought it and carried it, but, you know, kind of supplement that model. And then the other thing we were doing is, is figuring out because in that model, the margins are incredible if you go direct because you're giving everybody kind of margin along the way in that MLM mar model. Um, so we also tried to figure out like, how do we sell direct? Because, you know, mm -hmm. you're operating at like 80, 90% margin. So you can easily invest the money to to go direct and acquire the customers and do all that. So I was kind of tasked with twofold. Like, how do I enable the the consumer or the, the consultants to start selling more online? And how do we set up drop shipping and, and that whole system? And then two, how do we also sell direct? Because that is insanely profitable for for that business model. So did that, had built out a team of about, um, I think five or six people got it humming. I think we had shifted the business from probably like 90% in-home kind of the old school party plan model to about um, 75%, 25. So 25 was now on e-commerce. I kind of got hit the point where I'm like, my team was humming. There weren't a lot of things that I really needed to push on. So I kind of felt mm -hmm. like, you know what, I could mail it in and work like three hours a day and everything would probably be great. We'd still be growing. Um, and I kind of looked at it. I'm like, what's my path forward? Cause I'm reporting to the, 
the CEO mm-hmm. of the family that started it. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not taking his job. Like, so what am I going to do <laughs> next? So it's kind of getting a little mm-hmm. restless and was like, I feel like I've done what I can do here. I've got a good team in place. Like the business is going in the right direction. And like I recently had lunch with you know, CEO and COVID, obviously that infrastructure that we put in place accelerated even further. And it's probably 60% online now and 40% the, wow. the old school model. So really kind of a cool thing, but I just, I was looking for what's next there. Um, which led me to, I want to go to like startup, like almost no resources, like let's get it off the ground type thing. So um, there's an opportunity to join a company called Amify that was really an, originally an old school, just like a reseller on Amazon, right? So buy buy products, resell it. They were trying to get more into like the the, the tech enabled services model. So like a, like a jungle scout with like, you know, agency managed services type thing where you would run people's Amazon account, accounts end to end. So I came on, I was one of, with the intent of like moving most of the company to Cincinnati, which we ended up doing, it was located in DC. So as we made that shift from reseller to to the new model with VC funding, I think I was employee one in Cincinnati, um, opened up our office, was leading sales and marketing and, and kind of bringing new clients on and taking it until we made it, right? I was like really just using my P&G background and the, a, a guy who's my co-founder now was our our president there and we both just would lean in on our png backgrounds and try to get people to sign up with us um until we could get enough logos to kind of get the flywheel going um so that was a that that was kind of my next iteration of like great i went from png this billion dollar company to 100 million dollar company to now you know startup with vc funding mm-hmm. like we're we're trying to scale quickly and i'm employee one and how do we i, I think by the time i left we had 40 or 50 employees in cincinnati and you know 50 50 to 60 clients from like you know, no name brands to First Aid Beauty, which P&G owns, to some of Energizer's brands, to Dr. Squash, the the, the soap company. So it was like awesome. a really cool experience to kind of build that build that out. And for me, like learn everything about selling on Amazon, right? From a content standpoint, from an operations standpoint, how you optimize advertising. Like that was probably a, a weak spot for me that, um, you know, all the same principles of consumer goods still hold true, but it's just like, how do you apply those specifically to the Amazon channel, which then kind of lended to like walmart.com, which is, you know, very similar to that. So incredibly cool experience um, to do that as well. Yeah. A little different selling services as well, I guess. Yeah. That was like, I think for me that that was a great experience to kind of, I'd never led a sales team before. So I had salespeople reporting to us and Mm -hmm. we had quotas and we were, we were doing all that. So it was, uh, it was cool to learn B2B and, and really figure out, you know, who your ideal prospect is, how you qualify them, how you have a, a great, upfront conversation about their their pain points and whether or not your service makes sense for them yeah dr squatch is a good one too i uh I yeah that was the, a fun brand to work with i saw the cmo speak at brand week uh earlier this year and yeah what they've done is pretty crazy i think i think they're like the number one natural male uh brand in, in health and beauty now so it's crazy i mean yeah. i think they were doing probably like 20 or 30 million on amazon um and i know they've grown pretty they take they took some funding, but a lot of it's been organic growth and just doing yeah. it very smartly. Yeah, yeah. I almost feel like the experience on Amazon is so important now for anyone in the CPG space. It's like you know, ten years ago, if you're in the U.S., you had to get sales experience on the Walmart business. In Canada, you had yep. to experience on the Loblaws business. Like that was like a box you had to tick to be like, yep. I, I can move to the next level or I can do whatever. Now it's like that Amazon experience is is the box that you need to tick because so much of the world is going that way, and and it's also relevant to any other websites like you said like walmart.com or target or anywhere else right like a lot of the same rules and principles apply so if you can get yeah. those learnings it's, it's huge 
Yeah, huge. yeah, I can, I completely agree. Completely agree. So that was about two and a half years there. You learned sort of that whole e-commerce side, right? And then you made the decision to start Cincy Brands with, it sounds like, an, another gentleman from uh, Amify. So maybe walk us through yep. the decision to do that and, and what Cincy Brands is. Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, like I said, the goal was kind of always to get to like, how do we own our own company and build something that we're proud of? Um, and Andy, my co-founder, kind of had that same vision too. We originally worked together on IMS way back in the day when I was when I was 23. So it was kind oh, of really? a full circle. Awesome. And now it's our third time working together. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things we had seen, I think it was kind of the really like the summation of everything I'd done, right? Like at PNG Ventures, we were looking at, do we acquire businesses versus launch them? I found a ton of really cool businesses, you know, doing one to 10 million in revenue. Then I'm like, this would be a great business to own and run, but probably never going to be on the level that PNG wants it to be, yeah, right? Like yeah. $100 million, $200 million business. Um, so I was always intrigued by that. I think after two and a half years of being on the agency side, dealing with clients, like I commend all the agency people that have ever had to put up with my my shit over the years. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, wears, it can wear you down. So I was kind of getting, I was like, all right, I want to get back to the brand side of things. Um, so we, we, we launched Cincy Brands kind of with the idea of let's take all these skill sets that we have. Can we go find better for you brands, which is kind of where my experience was and where all the trends are that are doing one to 10 million in revenue, ideally profitable um, that we can acquire and kind of run at an operating company level that as we look for acquisition brands have the potential to do well in already established in a couple of channels, right? So the Amazon, Walmart.com marketplace world, the direct to consumer world, so your Shopify websites, and then some retail distribution or the potential to go into retail so that we could use all of our experiences, acquire them, and then put growth plans in place, to brand dependent to, to try to grow all three channels in a smart way over a, you know, a five, six, seven year time horizon. And can we take a $6 million brand and grow it to 15 or 20? And then we either keep it and run it for a, a very long time or we look to sell it to a, a private equity firm or, or exit mm-hmm. it further upstream, right? So that, that's kind of the whole, our whole thesis and, and impetus of, of this. When we were at Amify, we were looking, we were working with a lot of the Amazon aggregators. So we were seeing that business model and our spin on it was, we don't want to buy just 100% Amazon only brands. Like that's a fine yeah. business model, but we think there's something here where you can do that same model with, you know, brands that have more awareness and can hang outside of, you know, Amazon search, paid search and organic search. So that that was kind of the impetus for for why we started it. We wanted to do it in Cincinnati because with Kroger here, with PNG here, with all the agencies and support staff, like Cincinnati is a phenomenal consumer goods talent company, but or, or, or part of the country. But all the consumer goods startups happen in New York, San Francisco, LA, mm-hmm. Austin, Texas. And people are kind of clamoring for something different. Like even the agencies that work on PNG brands are like, I would love to work on and we proved that out at Amify when we hired 50 people, they were all come from that ecosystem. Like, I want to work on something new and different and exciting. So mm-hmm. that was our, our, that's our kind of our thesis. So we get good people here in Cincinnati, we'll build it. Um, and then from a shipping standpoint, we're centrally located in the heart of the US. So mm-hmm. it makes kind of 3PL warehousing, shipping easy for all the brands too. So that's why we, uh, that was kind of our, our whole impetus. And our, our vision is how do we build, you know, a, for lack of a better term, like a mini PNG that's, you know, 500 million, a billion dollars in revenue over a, you know, 10 to 15 year period. Very cool. Awesome. And, and, and all focused on the, the better for you sort of um, products, right? And so why, why the decision to do that? Like, is that personal? Was that the trends combination? Uh, a combination. I think when Andy and I were talking about it, we were like, 
we want to we want to acquire brands that are going to resonate with you know millennial and Gen Z shoppers like and yeah. and and we'll have long kind of growth patterns in, in in life and then we also looked at like what do we consume ourselves or what do we give our kids or what do we bring into our house for our pets and we're like we use all these brands ourselves like yeah. why would we yeah. acquire something different if we didn't feel passionate about it so it was kind of our own personal interests with where the trends are and and you know I think probably for me like having launched a better for you brand that disrupted some of the old categories like knowing that there's a, a, a nice playbook and people are open to to alternatives and oftentimes we'll spend a little bit more of a premium if it's you know a little bit better for you or the ingredients are a little bit more premium or cleaner um than other things that are out there for sure for sure tell us a little bit about uh it looks like you've you've done at least one acquisition vitabox tell us a bit about that that one yeah so as we were thinking about how do we how do we build this company out? And, and we have another acquisition that works. Hopefully we close in January. I can't really say much more about that, but it, it's an actual consumer brand. Um, but cool. as we're looking at this, we're like, if you look at P&G, right, what are, what are they? They're a house of brands and they're also kind of a distribution company. Yeah. So we looked at Vitabox and it's, you know, it's a, it's an operations company, right? It's a, an arbitrage reseller that buys product from, you know, Unilever prestige brands that own like Ludens and Dranamine and in a lot of private brands and and resells them on Amazon, Walmart, eBay, um, Kroger.com, the different marketplaces, and and some through Vitabox.com, although it's a smaller portion of the the overall business. And we looked at that and we we're like, their warehouse was here in Cincinnati. The company had existing revenue and kind of I think we have now 23 warehouse employees, um, really good, good bones of a company. The ability to do to, to store products in a warehouse to do direct to consumer fulfillment, Amazon, FBA, Walmart, kind of WFS prep. Yeah. You can do fulfilled by merchant and then also the ability to, to, to service B2B orders. So we looked at it as like, let's buy our distribution and operating company is mm. the base of this so that we don't have yeah. to go buy one brand for 6 million bucks and be like, now what are we going to go do? We got to go get a 3PO. We got to go get our warehouse. And like, yeah, it, it's smart. The cost, the costs just don't justify it. So we bought that business and we've we've doubled it since we acquired it, which has been awesome. It's it's a profitable business, so it, it's a great cash flowing business for us. So that's gone kind of better than we've expected. And then we've been patient as we've been looking for other brands because as I'm sure listeners or you guys have seen, like in 2020, 2021, e-commerce brands, Amazon brands were all the rage. Like valuations went up beyond yeah. what you would typically pay for something like that. To the some point of them were some, some were outrageous, yeah. Yeah. So like <laughs> Even then, like a lot of people are paying five, six, seven times annual profit for these businesses, which is like when you look at like using debt to buy them and everything else, you're like, hmm, like it it becomes pretty challenging to do. So even for, through most of this year, I think there's just been expectation readjustments on that. So we were like, our, our philosophy is we've got this great business. We don't want to rush in and overpay for something. We want to find businesses where we can pay a fair value that, that yeah. you know, the owners feel good about, that we feel good about. Um, but we don't want to go buy something for, you know, five or six times, especially with where, you know, the federal fund rates are in debt and cost of capital, everything else. So that's why we've been a little bit more patient. We've, we've been focusing on growing this Vitabox business. And like I said, we're playing for, you know, the next 10 to 20 years. Like I don't need to go do something, uh, to grow in two to three years. Like I would, if I was venture capital funded. Um, so that's been, that's been cool. Um, and continue to make a lot of really good relationships with, with brands. It may not be now may not be the right time for them to sell, but I've just been, um, I've learned a ton just from the founders I've talked to that, you know, when we talk about whether they're open to selling, just like 
how much of an open book they are, they usually are. Like we'll have great conversations about their business. Maybe we'll go under NDA and they'll send me their their uh, their financials, and we'll just talk about even if I'm not going to buy them, like what can they do? What are things they can improve? And just lay the groundwork to build their relationship. So you know, yeah. hopefully when they do so, I'm the first call that they make. Um, yeah. But it's been cool to take all the experiences I've had, and then I've probably looked at a hundred businesses like PLs and, and and really got into the weeds with some of the founders of how they operate over the past year and like just learning from them too. I mean, I think on the flip side, like having come from big CBG down the small, like I really admire the people that just jump into it with, you know, yeah. no CBG yeah. experience that just, they figure it out. Right. And like they yeah. get after it. Like there may be some things they can improve or, or, or outages, but like most people that are entrepreneurial, just, you know, they find a way to make it work and they find a way to figure it out, which is for me, like a lot of fun is I, uh, is I have conversations and look for brands to acquire. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It is, it is amazing what some people accomplish that like teams of one that just start a company yeah. or teams of two and they scale it to like, it's in like a thousand stores or something. You're like, how the heck did they do this? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, inc- it's really incredible without um, any, any experience. And then there's small tweaks that probably you, with your experience, you can say, you know, change a, B and C and they can grow exponentially. So you can add a ton yeah. of value there. I'm, I'm sure. So what, what's next for, for Cincy Brands, anything else you can talk about in the future that you guys are planning on doing? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, we're we're hoping to acquire probably uh, probably three more brands next year um, okay. and build out the for- portfolio. We'll continue to to grow Vitabox. Our goal is to try to double that business again next year. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of it. I think we're we're trying to to build out our team uh, and continue to build out our team with with good people and um, our philosophy. And I think probably just having been through. Now, now seeing the private equity and venture capital side of the world, like probably my, I align more with kind of the private equity side of the world where like we're going to bring, we're going to add on team members, you know, as we're kind of bursting at the seams to grow, like we're not going to mm-hmm. over, overbuild out the team where you typically might in a venture capital world because you've got to, you know, drive top line growth really quickly. So, you know, we'll grow slow and steady over the next year and, and uh, hopefully get some good with the deal, this deal we may close in January, hopefully get a good a good case study of what we're doing that we can use to have conversations with other founders to try put put uh yeah. put unique deals together. Awesome. Awesome. Um shifting gears a little bit, uh something we like to to probe on with people is just around kind of working methodologies and how you manage to get the most of your your kind of weeks and days. So maybe, you know, you could give the audience a bit of a flavor for how, how you prioritize, how you organize to to kind of be as productive as, as possible. Obviously, you know, you've, you've accomplished a lot. So I'm curious to hear what you, what your methods are. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was a perfect formula with it. I mean, I probably struggle sometimes like everybody does with like yeah. <laughs> all the things yeah. you could be doing and prioritization. But I'd say for me, I try to on a weekly basis and even down to like when I start my day is like, what are the, like, if, if I ended the week, what are the like two or three things that I really want to get accomplished this week that if I don't get accomplished, I'd be disappointed. And I try to focus on doing those. Mm-hmm. Then on a daily basis, I try to do like, what are the two to three things today that I really want to get done that will move, you know, have that kind of highest impact to move things forward um, and try to get those done. And then, you know, I use, as I think about like what not to spend my time on or what not to get distracted on, I like, I kind of use like a simple, you know, X, Y graph of like impact and effort. And like, can I go get the like Mm -hmm. low effort, high impact things first? And then if there's like high effort, low impact things, like maybe I just do I even need to spend my time on those? Are they even worth it? Or can I, can I outsource it? Um, we've got a, a great offshore team for some of those things that we, we outsource. So it's like trying to figure that out. Um, I use an app called focus keeper. 
um, which is nothing just other than a fancy timer, but I try to work in like time blocks. So I'll turn on, I'll like really keep heads down and try to not get distracted for a 20 minute period. Then I'll give myself like a three minute break to, you know, think about or do whatever I want and and try, try to get into it. Otherwise, you know, it's easy to, with everything going on, you've got your phone, you've got (laughs) internet access. It's easy to get distracted and, you know, check every ding or ding that comes in your phone or every uh, pop-up that comes in on your email. Yeah. You're one of the first people we've asked that question to actually talk explicitly about what not to do, um, which is maybe one of the more important things. I think, <laughs> it's, but, it's honestly yeah, like, mo- it really I, I almost think it's, I almost think it's more important. Like with our team, when we set our uh, quarterly, we use like the OKR system that like Google and everyone else uses. Like we spend probably as much time talking about what we're not going to spend our time on because it's not going to add that that much value as we do like what we're actually going to go do. Um, and I think sense. it's, I think it's important, right? Because you can get sucked down rabbit holes that, you know, you're like, mm-hmm. I just burned two days or a week on, on a project that when you take a step back, you're like, does it really help grow top lines? Does it really help improve profitability? Like, yeah, pro- probably not. Then why did I just spend all my time on it? Just punching, punching air sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, thousand percent. I like that. Um, another question we like to ask all of our guests is, "What is your product or brand crush?" So, what is a product or brand that you either love the product itself, you love what they're doing from a marketing perspective, it's something you use, perhaps it doesn't have to be anything you've ever worked on. It could just be a, a product you like in your personal life. But what is your sort of brand crush? And as a as a marketer, I'm curious to hear this answer. Yeah, no, that's that's a great. Honestly, I probably haven't thought about it. I used to always have a good thoughtful answer to this. I probably haven't thought about it in a while. Um, I'm trying to think. I would say probably, I don't know, a brand I'm really liking right now because I went, I've got some friends that work at like startups and like people always send me product or as I'm, as I'm interviewing founders, there's there's a men's grooming brand. It's kind of small. I think it's a few million bucks called Huron out of New York. Um, I know the guy who's their CMO. He sent me a, a, a ton of their product and I've never typically been one. Like now I'm getting a little older. I'm like, oh, I got some wrinkles, everything <laughs> else. You know what I mean? I've never typically been like the the men's skincare guy. I was always the the old spice guy of like, I'll just use body wash on my face and move on with myself. So <laughs> um I think they do a really cool job because their packaging's great. Like it's simple. It kind of has that like elegant apple type look. Like from what I've used, like the products are pretty cool. Um, so I've been pretty bullish on on that brand and just trying to like learn more about about what they're doing and mm. I know they're trying to expand to retail and I think they, they may be onto something and, and kind of have, have an interesting spin on things. So not a nationally recognized brand, but I deal with so many of these brands that I'm trying that people send me yeah. after I talk to them that yeah. I kind of find and discover things that I'll, you know, of everything that I get sent, I probably don't use half of it, but the ones that I end up continuing using, I'm like, all right, there's probably something here, at least for me or people in my demographic that might like it. We we like the hidden gems. Also, yeah. starting to get those wrinkles myself, so I think uh, I think maybe I'll have to check <laughs> yeah. that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Last question we'd like to ask. Um. You know, if you were up on a up on a, a soapbox in front of 20, uh, 20 young professionals, you know, eager to to make their mark in consumer products, whether that's as entrepreneurs or or moving up through uh through you know the ranks of a of a big company like PNG Unilever or Pepsi or something like that. Um, and you were going to give them one or two pieces of advice. What would you, what would you want to give them? Yeah, I would say try to understand like when you're, when you're young and, and consumer goods, try to soak in everything you can from all aspects of the business and really understand what matters, what makes things work. I would say if you can get exposure to your, your brand or your business's profit and loss statement to really understand 
you know, gross revenue, any kind of sales deductions or trade dollars you're giving that revenue down to all the way down to, you know, cost of goods, contribution margin, what you're spending on marketing and in kind of the OPEX that gets you the, to net income. Like I wish consumer goods were, I was having this conversation the other day. I wish consumer goods were like, you know, SaaS products or tech where you have like 90% gross margins on everything, but they're not right. You carry, <laughs> yeah. you carry inventory, you often operate at like a, a 10, yeah. 10 to 15 net margin. And, you know, you got to manage these things diligently and, and be disciplined about it. And like one era of launching a product and ordering too much inventory, like it can really like set you back or, or hurt the business. So trying to learn the PL and like be curious about it and find, you know, finance people, mentors, like in the business you work for that are willing to like spend time with you and, and really help you get an understanding is probably like one of the biggest things. I think understanding supply chain is probably cool, probably more important than ever um, yeah. with everything that's kind of happened recently, like how the product's made, how you get it, how you, you know, how you produce it, minimum order quantities, all that stuff as you, especially for smaller, smaller um, companies. And then the other thing for people working at big companies is, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was the junior assistant brand manager on IMS, like I had to write the monthly letter, which everybody hated doing, but usually you're, everybody's reading it right all the way up to like your general manager, maybe even your president. So really embrace that and just try to, to learn as much as you can and make sure that, that you view that exercise as a way to dig into the business and understand what the key drivers are. Um, because I think those are the things that will always stick with you because no matter what you're selling, whether it's online and looking at Amazon data, whether you're looking at, you know, Nielsen scanner data, you're going to go look at the same metrics, like once you figure out how to analyze the business. So I think a lot of it's just coming down to like data analysis, understanding your PL and understanding the key drivers. And once you get it down for one business, you can reapply that to almost any consumer goods business, whether it's food, whether it's beverage, whether it's personal care, like that's the beauty about it. Like all these businesses function very similarly. I love it. I think that's awesome. It's a lot of great advice. Yeah. Uh, Sean, really appreciate you coming on today and and uh, chatting with us. I think your your career journey has been incredible. A lot of great learnings and advice throughout, and then of course the piece at the end that was uh, that was awesome. Yeah, super awesome. excited yeah. to see. Uh, super excited to see the next year what you guys do. Yeah, yeah, likewise, and, and appreciate it for you guys having me on. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, some of the listeners here were able to pull some nuggets out and get some value. Thanks so much. You Sean. too. Have you a too. Good one. Thanks, Sean. Yep. See you guys. See ya. What a great conversation with Sean, a, a really cool career path, you know, oddly enough, some parallels to mine. Like I also did uh, finance undergrad, thought I was going to go into banking or, you know, work on Bay Street and then got into the, the CPG space and then went into the better for you space. So a lot of parallels, like I said, he's just done it better than I have, which it's is like uh, the Cincinnati, really cool. Justin, Cincinnati Justin. Yes. Or am I the Souk mm. Sean? I think that's probably more. more <laughs> maybe that's case. more. Yeah, maybe that's more accurate. But a really cool conversation. What do you think, Alex? I thought it was great. I mean, I I thought um, some of his his final advice was super uh, important in terms of yeah. just soaking in all of the various uh, learnings you can get while you're starting your career. I, I really agree with what he had to say about understanding the PL and the implications, yeah. how it all hangs together, and the importance of having that grounding to if especially you're thinking an entrepreneurial path to set yourself up in a way that is sustainable you know from a business standpoint supply chain as well obviously has become a really important thing 
over COVID. And, and, and again, it's another one of these backbones to your business where if you get it wrong, it can be really hard to fix. So I thought those two uh, pieces of advice were huge. The other one, he didn't so much explicitly say, but I thought he conveyed that he's living. It's just the importance of networking and and reaching out and you know talking about how when he was uh, launching the brand for P&G, how he was reaching out to like the founders of Casper and, and, yes. and Hubble and other brands to understand how they approached things. And I think, you know, our personal experience doing this, this uh, exercise of, of making you guys this podcast has taught us that people do pick up the phone a lot more frequently than you might expect, which, which, you know, his kind of example showed how that could benefit you and your job and in a very, in a very practical way. How about you, Justin? Yeah, yours are a thousand percent correct. The other one I liked was that when he was talking about, he could have gone on to be a, a you know director on an established brand or something like that. And he said, I really just wanted to follow what was interesting for me. I thought that was a, yeah. a, just a simple way to think about your life and your career. Because in the world of LinkedIn and titles and what do you do for a living and all this stuff, people do get wrapped up in wanting to be a VP or wanting to be a director, or wanting to be a president, instead of just following what is truly interesting to them. And so by doing that, he's had all these unique experiences that he may not have had. Uh, so just a, a, a simplified approach that I think makes a ton of sense in, in people's careers that they should follow. Love it. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for, for tuning in. Huge thank you to Sean for making the time and, and sharing his uh, awesome journey and, and experiences with us. If you haven't already, please give us a like, subscribe. Uh, follow on on whatever podcast platform you're listening to ratings and reviews go a, a long way in helping us so if you're on apple Podcasts or spotify please throw us a rating and other than that uh, look forward to having you back next time for another great interview thanks everyone bye guys